for us long-term investors, I, I generally believe that Bitcoin has a sincere chance of uh, not replacing, but being a competitor or even just an alternative to gold. And it, it could be there in, in five to 10 years. And then I don't mind if today I pay, what is the price now, $40,000 today and $30,000 tomorrow. It's for me mainly the same option that I have on the future. I'm Chris Hill, and that was Bern Schmidt, the Motley Fool's cryptocurrency expert in Germany. Today on the show, we're going in-depth on crypto. Let's face it, this has become an area of investing with a lot of noise. So Bern joins producer Ricky Mulvey to discuss how to find value amid all that noise, how to think about allocation if you want to dip your toes in the space, the fundamental differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum, and a lot more. I'm so excited for this. Joining me now is Bern Schmid. He is our crypto expert and the lead advisor for the Fool's Digital Explorers program. For me, especially as I've explored this space, it's very it's confusing. It's deep. There's 80,000 cryptocurrencies out there. So, Bern, what are some of the general principles you look at when you're evaluating essentially what's good and what's bad? Hey, Ricky, thanks for having me here. And I'm, I'm definitely very passionate about the space, though I wasn't aware that there were already 80,000 of these things out there. However, probably anyway, 90 to 95% of them aren't very useful. And so for, there's actually two things I'm looking for to answer your question or that I look for when I analyze such a project is the one is, uh, does it solve a real world problem uh, in a way that wasn't able to be solved without the technology it's built on, like blockchain distributed ledger technology. So it should really employ the technology in a way that, yeah, is being, yeah, that it solves a problem that otherwise wouldn't be solved. And the second one is, are they actually doing it? Like, is there code already written? Is there a network effect generated? That's actually what I'm looking for. Are there people joining this network? And is it, yeah, is there a, a way forward on this where we see exponential growth uh, for this technology or this project? So, is there a problem and is there room for growth? Seems to be the two uh, ideas here that you're really looking for. And, you know, hearing you in past interviews, something I, I started thinking about too is when we talk about crypto, we're really talking about three types of, of things there's cryptocurrency, there's asset backed currency, and then there's platforms. Can you briefly kind of talk about the difference between those three? Yeah, but I have to say that this is a framework I used to work with, but it's continu continuously evolving. Um, and right now, but for, for a broad concept, I think it's still useful to, to have it. So cryptocurrencies, people generally like to talk about cryptocurrencies when they talk about anything in the space. Ethereum is a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, and, and whatever, Solana, whatever people know, it's all cryptocurrencies. Or that, in, in my point of view, I'd like to differentiate a little bit uh, because... In cryptocurrency, you have the word currency, but what is a currency? A currency is something, right, as, as, a, as a medium exchange of exchange or, or um, it can be used as a store of value, like is money. But not all of these, so what people call cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, or even objectively, don't try to solve a problem that currencies or money are trying to solve. And so I'd like to reserve the term cryptocurrency for coins or projects who do that actually, like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like, uh, if you read the white paper, it was meant to be a medium of exchange, digital medium of exchange. So it's definitely cryptocurrency. So you're not seeing people trying to build applications on top of a Bitcoin like they can on something like Ethereum. Actually, it could happen, and it does happen. Okay. I don't know if if it will if it will succeed in the end. Um, 
but from the idea, the concept was meant Bitcoin, the medium of exchange uh, in the very short white paper. Whereas Ethereum, for example, the second biggest project out there, um, also in the hundreds of billions already, uh, it was meant to have programmable money. Like you, you write programs, so-called smart contracts, on the, which are running on that platform. And so that's why I wouldn't call Ethereum or Ether a cryptocurrency, but I would see this as a so-called platform, the second big pillar uh, that you were talking about. And then I think as third, you mentioned asset-backed tokens. So this yes. could be security tokens, for example, um, or you could, for example, tokenize real estate. That means you create a token on the blockchain, for example, on Ethereum, that represents a digital like a digital right on, on really a, a real estate project that is out there, for example, a building. And so this is, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's also not a platform, but yeah, it's a token which represents some real world value. And I'm excited to dive in kind of deeper into those three types of cryptos uh, later into this conversation. But something I've generally struggled with is um, crypto is generally a place where you kind of dip your toe in. You have to use these exchanges. It's not something that you can necessarily easily, I should say there are ways of doing it, but easily hold in something like an IRA. So for someone who's newer to crypto, let's say they have about one to $5,000 to invest, and this is money that they're comfortable setting aside for three to five years. How do you generally think about allocation for that kind of beginner who's willing to dip their toes in? It depends also on your interest, but I think most people who just want to have the interest as an investor and don't want to use these ecosystems so far, I would say um, open an account with one of the bigger exchanges you find uh, to, just to drop some names. It's not, not an endorsement. Coinbase, Gemini, Aval um, this is Avalanche, uh, Anchorage, Kraken. There's a couple of exchanges out there. Each offers different kinds of coins, but all of them offer the bigger ones. And that's where I would start, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, is I think still worthy of an allocation. Um, and then depending on how deep you want to get into the weeds, there's certainly an actually very, pro in my opinion, very promising projects among the 80,000 that you mentioned. If you just look at the top 100, I'm sure you, anybody can find 10, 15, which could excite them if they have the time to dig into. Um, so I would probably, to stick with your example, if I had $5,000, I would probably put 80% of it, 50, 50 into, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the, the remaining 1,000, uh, probably in one or two projects that excite me most of the bigger ones. And there was the concern, or there is a concern, right, that um, among some cryptocurrency followers, that if you don't physically hold the cold storage of your, your tokens, if you don't have it on a USB drive that's locked away somewhere, you don't own that token, especially if it's on a uh, exchange. Is this something, this sounds like something that uh, you don't necessarily believe in? Do you feel comfortable using these large exchanges for crypto transactions? Yes, I do feel comfortable. The ones I mentioned, I don't have any bigger concerns about those. There are some, uh, for example, Binance is one I like to use. Uh, they have two platforms, one for non-US and one for US investors, so probably it doesn't affect US investors so much, but I use the one for outside. It's actually the biggest exchange out there, but I oftentimes have issues withdrawing my coins from there. And I'm the one, I'm one who likes to use these coins. Like I usually put them on my wallet and then employ them in a DeFi project or um, whatever I want to do, I want to stake them. And Binance some, so sometimes doesn't let me do that. Especially when they see active trading, they've occasionally shut it down. And that's been uh a subject of criticism among a lot of investors. And I think one reason that people have been a little bit fearful of, of getting in, especially to those smaller name cryptocurrencies. 
And that's fair. And so I actually don't subscribe to not your wallet or not your keys, not your coin. So yeah. I still believe that whatever Binance shows me I own, I really own. I mean, they know who I am and I don't think anybody could take it away from me aside from some real hacks that could happen, I suppose. But I generally feel more comfortable, especially if it's bigger amounts, to have it on my own wallet and control it myself. Um, but that's really just me personally. But aside from just the risks, aside from the cybersecurity as, uh, aspect, you mentioned that there are some exciting projects and problems that these coins are trying to solve. What's one problem you're seeing addressed in, in crypto right now, a meaningful problem that uh, is being solved by this kind of technology? There's so many. Um, it's difficult to just pick one example, but one just because I researched it, I think yesterday and today is is projects that actually do video live streaming. And I wasn't aware of that, but apparently for broadcasters, video live streams are really expensive. It goes into the uh, if you have the numbers, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really a couple of dollars per per hour, or is it hundreds of dollars? And then you need setup fees and and all these things. And the main one main reason is the transcoding. So you're transmitting the video to as you're broadcasting it, but then you want to have the receiver of the video being able to play it uh, fluently, if that's the right word, without interruptions. And so people with lower bandwidth they cannot down, like download your video probably with a with a bitrate in the quality that you uploaded it with. Um, but they want to have a, a lower quality to have it like a fluent stream of video. And yeah, others with a high bandwidth, they want higher quality video. And that means uh, you actually, the video that I upload, it needs to be so-called transcoded into different bit rates that then can be adjusted based on the, on the user, user's bandwidth. And this is apparently really expensive in the, in the current world with YouTube and Twitch and everybody. Uh, they have the resources to do it. Uh, but if you now use, uh, for example, you, well, Make it short. It turns out you could actually, for this transcoding process, you could actually use yours or mine computer. Mainly, the, it's the, the GPU, the graphical, pro, like your graphics card, essentially. It's very efficiently, in, uh, it does, does the transcoding process very efficiently. And so you can make a peer to peer system, a, a network of people who provide essentially a GPU power to this network, and broadcasters can use it and users benefit from it. And they can actually cut the costs, I think, roughly to one tenth of what these centralized entities use. And that's only oh, wow. because of, um, well, it would be possible without blockchain, but blockchain now you can build in these incentivization mechanisms that you would actually be really interested in providing your GPU power because you get directly reimbursed by uh, yeah, these, these coins that are being generated. And so you can use this technology to create this network and create the incentives for people really building this peer-to-peer -peer system. It's, it's happening. So it's it's the right balance of there's a problem, which is um, you know the way that we use GPU power on our computers is incredibly inefficient, but also the personal issue of you know burned in Germany. Why would I share my GPU with you here in Denver, Colorado? And this is a way of um, incentivizing people to participate in that exchange. Yes. And you know there are so many problems. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you just think about uh, all the censoring going on this yeah. in, in Twitter, in, in YouTube, and this is because these platforms are contro controlled by centralized entities. And one of the three big promises that I call them, that crypto or this distributed te ledger technology brings, is actually the remo removal of the middleman. You can replace these people in the middle with a technology that, it, that cannot be censored in the end. Yeah, and there is one example of that recently on Rule Breaker Investing. 
David Gardner sat down with Aaron Bush, and he he talked about one of uh, re- the removal of the middleman in terms of smart contracts. So let's say um, the example he used was let's say you wanted to bet on the North Carolina basketball team, I wanted to bet on the Texas basketball team. A smart we could have a smart contract, and that bet could take place without any middleman. If Texas wins, I would get the money. North Carolina wins, you would end up getting the money. Um, are you seeing smart contracts being used in that kind of way, particularly in the gaming space? I see this is happening. Um, so it definitely exists, and it's it's very easy to do. And, and there's so many examples like this. Uh, I, I, what I don't see is right now many companies employing this type of this type of technology, like using smart contracts to make such systems which already exist more efficient, like sports betting. But I have no doubt in, in my mind that this will happen um, because this smart contract, once you have it, it's there. You, you have you don't have to maintain it. It has your well, it does have some cost operating uh, for the transactions you generate, but it's very cheap to to then operate such a system. I think I could imagine why a sports gaming company though would not want to employ that because it would, in essence, kind of cut the spread that they have on these games. Um, but I would think that if you were invested in the gaming space, especially excited about these sports gambling companies, this is something that you maybe would want to be concerned about or look into because it could be a huge disruptor for them. Thanks, Ricky, for framing it like this because that it's actually the case. These people would disrupt their own business model if they would use these kinds of things. Like they, they, this is like they are the middleman, and they have no incentive replacing themselves. Right? This is this dilemma. Want to move on a little bit to talk about uh, Bitcoin because I think this is it's the most well-known brand. It's where I have some complicated feelings towards it because it, it's the number one, it's the biggest brand name, but it also has a lot of problems. One of the issues that I've I've seen are, are two. One of which is that the ability or the room, I guess, for for price manipulation, and the other being transaction time. So the amount of time it takes for those blocks to move on average is ten minutes. Is a medium of exchange, is that simply too long when you expect, you know, if I Venmo you $5, I expect that to happen instantly or I worry about where my money went. Do you think that transaction time is too long for it to be a useful medium of exchange 15, 20 years from now? Yes, I I don't think so. That uh, Bitcoin will fulfill the vision that Satoshi Nakamoto, the writer of the Bitcoin white white paper, the inventor, had for it to be a medium of exchange. And I don't see, and I think most people actually don't see Bitcoin now that way. Um, Bitcoin, I would rather rather now see as a potential replacement or a competitor to gold as a store of value um, in, in an inflationary environment. For many people, Bitcoin has been that, and, and it could be in the, in the long term. Uh, however, there's we've, we talked about Things being built on top of Bitcoin. There's something called the Lightning Network, for example. It's actually it was meant to solve exactly that problem. And there's there's transactions. So it's it's like like it's called Lightning fast net, um, settling time settlement times. It's happening very fast. It's cheap. Mm. So there could be stuff built on Bitcoin that might bring Bitcoin in that direction. On the other hand, I don't know if we need that. Like We have already, let's call it competitors of Bitcoin, who actually are much better at fulfilling this medium of exchange value. They have very fast settlement times, etc. Uh, and I think they could do that better. One other uh, area we talked about is kind of that the potential for price manipulation in Bitcoin. So I read this on Business Insider. It said, quote, the top 40% of all Bitcoin is held by just under 2,500 known accounts. So 
uh, price manipulation, especially, you know, it, it can happen at these smaller levels, but even at the larger levels, even at the area of Bitcoin, is that something that concerns you as a crypto investor? It doesn't. I mean, you can have very long philosophical discussions about this, but I, I think there are about 40 million wallets out there with Bitcoins, with non-zero values of Bitcoins in them. That means 40 million owners of Bitcoin. Two and a half thousand of them is like 0.01% or something like this, um, a bit less. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, of course, a, a few few people. But, you know, what are they in for? The question is like, what is their motivation? If they want to manipulate the price, let them do that. If, if they, they can manipulate it down by selling their Bitcoin, but then what do they want to do? So they, then they ultimately solve the problem by because they have to distribute this Bitcoin to others. And the, if the network grows broader, in the end, this problem will, will solve itself. It's such a philosophical discussion. I think you cannot manipulate the price in the long term, right? And for us long-term investors, I, I generally believe that Bitcoin has a sincere chance of uh, not replacing, but being a competitor or even just an alternative to gold. And it, it could be there in, in five to 10 years. And then I don't mind if today I pay, what is the price now? $40,000 today and $30,000 tomorrow. It's for me mainly the same option that I have on the future. Well, and I think price manipulation can be. I, I see your point of at an incentive level, it doesn't work because if you own the currency, you want it to go up, and then you can only. It's it's hard to sell your way up, um, especially if you're creating more supply and the demand stays stable. But I think that is a general concern, especially for the smaller coins. Um, something like Dogecoin, we saw that a year ago with Elon Musk going on Twitter, and you start to worry about the incentives. Why is he so excited about this cryptocurrency that seems to be a meme coin, but doesn't really solve any hard and fast problems that I can see? The world has become weird in, in some ways. <laughs> and I, this is one story I, I've, I've never understood. I'm not sure if I'll ever why Elon Musk was jumping on this, indeed. And <laughs> mainly because I didn't see a value. And probably I'm, I, I might just, not probably, but I might just be wrong. But I don't see a value and the problem that Dogecoin solves and why Dogecoin is more suited to <laughs> do whatever Elon Musk thinks it, it's supposed to do than any other coin out there whatever he wanted. So let's move on to number 2. This is the idea of platforms that we mentioned in the introduction. Platforms a little bit different than Bitcoin, which is a digital gold medium of exchange. This is where we start talking about things like uh Ethereum and Solana, the things that NFTs are based on that more applications are based on. So one question I don't understand burn and while I have an expert here is what is it about Ethereum that allows developers to build on it in an easier way than something like Bitcoin? It is mainly because Vitalik Buterin, the, or one of the founders, the main founder of Ethereum, he actually saw Bitcoin and he, if I remember correctly, I think he wanted actually Bitcoin to become something. He wanted to make Bitcoin programmable. But Bitcoin has this, and then that's here today, and I think that's one of its qualities. It has this strong community which thinks, no, we don't want to change the code. It is like what it is, and we, we want to keep it, and that's our strength. And he said, but look, if you make it programmable, you can, and we mentioned the sports betting, and, and there's so many use cases out there with smart contracts. He said, I can use this technology to just create programmable money, so I'll do it. And that's what he did with, with Ethereum. And it could like you it could very easily happen you can take the code, code of bitcoin extend it and make it to, similar to ethereum but ethereum has done it first in an alternative way and uh, has generated these network effects and now it's quite big already people are using it so it, it's been quite successful 
So the users of Ethereum are more willing to change um, the product than that of Bitcoin. Uh, can you think of some of those changes? One of which I, I again know very little about. That's why I'm asking you. Is that Ethereum is moving to a proof of stake model instead of uh, in terms of mining and how you're rewarded with those coins? Can you describe a little bit about some of the changes you've seen with Ethereum as it's developed? Yes, I'll do that. Uh, but first, to this Ethereum developers or the community more willing to be to change probably yes but that's also because you know there are different use cases ethereum wasn't meant to be what bitcoin is um, and yeah. bitcoin didn't want to be what ethereum is and so it makes sense to have these two systems and probably more in the future and in terms of ethereum developing further it's it's a very good point that you mentioned this switch to proof of stake that's a very big change that's actually it's in the transition state right right now i think the switch will occur some point uh, at some time this year, where they will switch from the so-called proof of work, where miners, um, they have to employ a lot of computing power to contribute to the network, to a proof of stake, where you actually don't need much computing power. And this will make the network 99%, I think, more efficient in terms of energy consumption. One of the interesting things about Ethereum and these uh, platform solutions, tokens, is that people can build on them. And one way that exists in Ethereum is something called Layer 2 solutions. Uh, Bern, what, what are these and uh, how should investors look at them? It's a great question. And it's a topic we could talk about for hours only. It's very complex. But these layer two solutions, they, they want to solve a specific problem, which is a problem of scaling. So Ethereum is like Bitcoin. It's a proof of work system. We talked about that before. And based like how they set it up is they can process about 15, 20 transactions per second at a maximum. And that's it. And that's by far not enough. To just, just to have a reference, Visa and MasterCard, they can process tens of thousands of transactions per second. And on top of Ethereum, you already have applications which could actually theoretically require this amount. You have exchanges where people trade coins with each other. Uh, you have lending protocols where constantly people uh, deposit tokens and, and lend. And there's activity happening. And the Ethereum blockchain just cannot transact or process all these transactions. And that's why the fees are very high. Uh, high demand, supply is limited to these 15 to 20 per second. So you pay, pay a lot of money. And these layer two solutions, they want to solve that by building on top of Ethereum. A layer two solution, um, to keep it simple, is something, uh, a separate, let's call it a system, which processes all these transactions, for example, specifically for one of these exchanges. It processes all of these transactions, but it's settling them only in batches on Ethereum. So let's say there are many traders on one of these exchanges. They're trading coins with each other. And let's say this exchange is built on the layer two. Then you have whatever, a thousand transactions per second. And then these are being batched together by this layer two solution and then sent to Ethereum in one transaction. And essentially you settle these thousands or thousand transactions in, in one transaction on Ethereum. And that's how you can make Ethereum scalable. Uh, that's a way you can get the gas fees lower as well. My understanding is that with Ethereum, the more transactions, the more congestion there is on the system, the higher the gas fees are. And that's been a big problem for people who want to um, transact on there because one of the promises of, of crypto is getting rid of the middleman. And then I can see people being understandably annoyed when they see these high fees to do a transaction on these, these DeFi systems. Absolutely. 
I want to talk about Solana for a sec too, because that's a re- that's that's a coin or a, a solution, a coin, a token, whatever we're calling it on this podcast uh, that has a lot of attention. And one reason is because it has lower gas fees, lower fees associated with it. That was a primary reason that I set up a position in it. And I guess I'm asking, is that investment thesis kind of sound to you, or do you think those layer two solutions for Ethereum will eventually get around those high gas fees on the main um, platform? This is also like a topic in itself and a really interesting question. You framed it very, very well, I think. So I think indeed Solana is meant to do something much better than Ethereum does, which is exactly that the, the scaling problem. And Solana can, or the promise is that they're able to scale as much as Visa Mastercard, what I mentioned, mentioned before, and do this really fast, settle very fast, and gas fees are low. They do this by sacrificing on another dimension, which blockchains uh, yeah, have. It's the aspect of decentralization. A blockchain works by you have a lot of so-called nodes. These are, let's say, called servers. They're running this blockchain and the code and, and on them in parallel, more or less. In Ethereum, almost anybody can do it. Um, in Solana, you need it's very high hardware and software requirements to do that. So there are not as many, and that's why people say Solana is not decentralized and blah blah blah. But uh, aside that, that aside, I think Solana has this really interesting value proposition. And now, exactly, I don't see Solana competing right now with Ethereum, but with these layer two solutions. Like if I'm an application and I want to build a blockchain application, a decentralized exchange or whatever, I can decide, do I go to Solana or do I go onto a layer two of Ethereum, Polygon, for example, both have similar promises or, or, or another alternative. And you asked me where, with how I see that play out. I don't know. Yeah. My current feeling <laughs> is that you will have different layer ones. You will have a, a Solana, you will have Ethereum and probably a couple of others and each specialized in what they do best and people being built on top of that. I'm not 100% sure about layer two solutions. I used to think you don't need them if you can do that on the layer one. On the other hand, there's some really interesting technologies being developed, very complex stuff. Some The most interesting to me are so-called zero or technology based on zero knowledge proofs, which is a mathematical concept. And there's a company called Starkware from Israel, which does that. And they're building layer two solutions for Ethereum. And what they say and what it does is actually they solve the scaling problem without sacrificing, for example, the decentralization that I mentioned before. So with with this Starkware solution, they say you actually inherit the security of Ethereum, the decentralization of Ethereum, but you have it scalable. So that actually means you have all the benefits of of Ethereum without the drawback, the low transaction speeds. And so if, if they, if this really proves to be true, and if they can generate these network effects that we talked about in the beginning of the show, I think these layer two solutions, they stand a chance and potentially even on on Solana, why not having applications with hundreds of thousands of transactions of second uh, per second running on a layer two on Solana, depending on the specific requirements that, that they have. So it's more about how people are using the solutions, and maybe there is one for this idea that the more decentralization you have, the more difficult it is to process a lot of transactions at once. The third place I want to go with this discussion is the area of of cryptos that scare me the most, and that's the asset-backed currency. Um, This is, I think, where you're seeing a lot of controversies. This is where you're seeing a lot of um, difficult-to-enforce promises. So, 
We talked about asset-backed currencies as this um, thing that I own a token, which means I own a share in um, could be anything. Could be a piece of real estate. It could be a book that somebody bought. I guess my question is: is is this where solutions are a little bit more difficult when you're saying I own a token that's backed by uh, a stake of ownership in a book or the uh, f- uh, piece of real estate or the future earnings of an of an athlete. That's that's fair, and I think here's the legal aspect. Uh, like it's not solved right now. I think there will need to happen a lot of things, and they're happening. Uh, I don't know how fast, but in the next one to two years, I think we will see solutions. Like if somebody offers, let's say, a piece of real estate on the blockchain, um, and and how do you trust this guy that you really own this piece of real estate by owning the token, and yeah. you have to verify that yourself. Um, so, uh, but. Here's the good thing. There's regulators also in place. Um, there's actually uh, so yeah the SSC that they have uh, regulations in place for so-called security tokens. And an, I think a real estate or a token backed by real estate in the end would qualify as a security token. That means somebody issuing that they will need to be regulated and they will have to fulfill some re- reporting standards and all these kind of things and and make it transparent. Like w- what do you actually really own? So it's actually possible to verify. They can only trade on certain regulated exchanges in, in, in specific cases. So you are kind of, I don't like this word in this case, but I have to use it. You are protected in a certain sense. If, if you, you can trust that this guy, if he trades on this exchange, that actually they have done the due diligence for you and you actually do own a piece of real estate if you buy the token. And then there's also this a way that asset-backed tokens are bringing in collectibles that I think are both interesting and raise a lot of questions. Um, one of which was there is a, a DAO that bought a book that is essentially how this this person interpreted Dune and how it would be a movie. And they bought the book as a DAO and then said, we're going to make an uh, animated series based off of it. But now a lot of critics are saying hey, just because you buy a book doesn't necessarily mean you own all of the rights associated with it. So I think you're going to see a lot of these interesting legal questions play out, and unfortunately, um, a lot of some people get burned in the process. Yeah, I didn't know this example before, but this is a really good example of what we talked about before: that you're buying the book, but you don't have the right to to generate whatever based on the story in the book. Um, yeah. If they bought the rights, they wouldn't need the book. So they could a DAO, they could form a DAO to buy the rights if somebody, whoever owns it, is is willing to sell it. And then, that, I don't know how you, you legalize that in the end, but if you own, then as a DAO, this, this right, then you could actually do all these things. You could create movies, etc. And But yeah, this is actually the legal aspect. Um, this is not a blockchain problem that will be solved, but how do you do it in, 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 in a legal way? To do these things. However, there's no question in mind also that this is going to happen. Why should, for example, the rights to a book, why wouldn't you tokenize it? Why wouldn't you put it on the blockchain? It makes it very easy to generate a market for these things. Or think about patents, uh, intellectual property rights in the patent office. If you put it on a blockchain transparently, you know what is there. And at any point of time, you know who owns which patent, for example. If you, uh, you know, if you have the patent in your wallet as a company, um, you can at any time say, "Look, we have this patent," and, and it like the process is it makes it so much more efficient. If you want to sell a patent, you know, you just make a blockchain transaction, and that's it. Yeah, in some ownership cases, it's going to make a lot of sense, but you're still at the, you're, you're still at the very beginning stages. Yes. I think for creative projects, it's going to be maybe more difficult than just intellectual property. I can't imagine dealing with a decentralized group of folks who want to have input on how we're going to adapt the animated series of Dune. And um, 
having to listen to all of those notes. But um, Godspeed and good luck to him. A couple final questions um, wanted to ask you before we wrap up this Sunday show. What are some publicly traded companies? Maybe you're a little bit concerned about getting involved in crypto directly. What are some publicly traded companies that you think are using crypto and blockchain, DeFi in an interesting way? Love the question. I'm talking my own book here. So full disclosure, I own this company and it's the major part of my stock portfolio that I still own. I think there's one which so far has been doing that better than anybody else. Like in terms of utilizing blockchain, there's a lot of other companies, I think, which will profit from the general trend. For example, NVIDIA, I think it's a full favorite, which produces hardware that will be used in in many of these proof of work systems. But one company which really tries to solve problems, which couldn't be solved without blockchain before, is Overstock. Not Overstock itself. So the retailer, they're they're a company, well, you know them better than me. I'm in Germany. I don't, I cannot use them here, but they're actually a, yeah, an online retailer. Competitor is Wayfair. I think they sell a lot of home furniture, but they have, they found it. And the history is really interesting. It's another podcast. You should talk to, to the founder of Overstock about that. Um, but based on the history, they have decided to go into blockchain. They were also one of the first ones, if not the first one to accept Bitcoin as a payment in 2013 or so as a side note. However, they actually developed the um, a system themselves called T0. And T0 tries to solve the problem that we experienced almost exactly a year ago with what you what we saw with AMC in the stock market, where actually more shares were sold short than actually shares are outstanding on the market. And then you create these short squeezes and, and all this havoc in the markets and, and Robin Hood has to close down and all these things. This could be solved or this problem wouldn't be there if you had a settlement system where you actually know exactly at which point of time who owns which kind of share, which right now is actually not the case if you if you really dig deep. Um, shares right now are settled at the T plus, plus two time frame. That means if you buy a share from somebody else, two days later, it will be settled generally. And T0, as the name suggests, they build it on the blockchain. You could do the same. It, it's essentially instant. You, if I buy an Overstock share from you, it gets transferred to me and I know I own it. That's it. So an Overstock does that. And not only with T0, but because they have started to build knowledge with blockchain and, and these technologies, uh, they invested in other startups. And they do this under the umbrella of Medici Ventures, which is a subsidiary of Overstock. And they own really interesting uh, blockchain startups in there and some of them doing really interesting stuff and it's really being employed. Another one that excites me a lot, they do the central bank digital currencies and actually Nigeria, one of the biggest African countries, uh, they have used uh, yeah, overstocks, the overstock subsidiary to implement their central bank digital currencies. And I think also the Bahamas or Barbados, one of these Caribbean islands, they also do it and more and more countries are doing that. Then they have votes, digital voting, like voting on the blockchain. Uh, well, you guys know, know a bit or two about uh, how difficult the current uh, voting system could be. Uh, so, and yes, Overstock is the one company that I own for that, where I think they, they can really solve a lot of these issues out there. That's not the one I would have expected. I was going to guess uh, like an NVIDIA or a computer chip maker, but Overstock, something that I will be putting on my watch list. Bern Schmidt, lead advisor on crypto at The Motley Fool. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Ricky. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, what investors should know about China's middle class and the stocks that could benefit from their consumer spending. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.